Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. Okay. Well, listen, guys, as we continue to make our way through the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 8 and 9 really go together. Every chapter in Matthew's Gospel goes together. He wrote it in such a way that it all connects. And as we come out of the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen an emphasis on Jesus and his teaching. And then here we see an emphasis on his miracles, his healing miracles here in chapters 8 and 9. And we're going to continue to look closely at those today. However, similar to last week, we'll move through some of the text fairly quickly to ensure that I think that we're able to to take from this uh, this morning the the theme that I think really stands out for us. It's my hope that today just like last week, that our faith would continue to increase as we consider for ourselves who Jesus is and the power and authority that belongs to him and him alone. But this uh, week, I would also want us to really focus in and see the reasons why Jesus came and why he heals and what our ultimate need for him really is. And further, how he might use us to communicate that to a lost and dying world. Now, here's the thing. As we consider Jesus and we consider the work that he's doing here, and and particularly here in chapter 9 today, we look at some of what Jesus communicates around his working of miracles. We'll see that it's more than just the miracle. It's more than, than just the physical healing. There is a spiritual component to this, as you might expect. And so in addition to increasing our faith, in addition to understanding more of why Jesus does what he does, we are also... And it's my hope today that as believers, so those of you that know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that today you'd look at this and and you would leave with a sense of of encouragement and, and exhortation to the work that the Lord calls us to in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The very gospel that's changed our lives ought to be shared with others who need that truth and hope. And if somebody is here today, whether in this room or watching online, who who is yet to surrender their life to Christ, I pray that this would also be an encouragement for two reasons. One, that you too would understand the reason why Jesus came, that it is in fact for sin as we'll consider, but also that sadly within the church today there has been a great deal of condemnation, right? And many people are feel as if they're looked down upon by those within the church, but hopefully what we'll see today is that we are, we are all guilty, and so Jesus has come for all of us in that way, and so it's my hope that maybe those who have yet to surrender their life to Christ would also be encouraged by really the truth of why it is that Jesus came. As we have seen, Jesus has authority over the physically marginalized and outcast. He has authority over the ethnically outcast. He has authority over the culturally and socially marginalized. He has authority over creation as well as over his disciples. But also to be a disciple, you must be willing to bring yourself under his authority, and under the authority of his word. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's the implication of that. And then if we are under the authority of Jesus, then we must recognize that we are owned. We are no longer our own. But we, and and this is the wonderful thing, that as we recognize that we now belong to Jesus, to know that we are owned by the one who owns it all. And so because of that, because we have confidence in who Jesus is, we we don't fear, we should not fear, we should not be anxious. 
We should trust Him with our lives, even if He chooses to use our lives and calls us into things that has much risk associated with it. Even if He calls us to go out into this world to, to work for Him, and, and even in difficult ways, we trust Him with our lives. And so as we continue in chapter 8 and verse 28, uh, we see Jesus continue to demonstrate His authority just as He has through all of chapter 8 and the miracles we considered there uh, through the first part of it. We see Jesus continue to demonstrate this as they encounter two demon-possessed men. Let's go ahead and read the first couple of verses together and then we'll pray. It says, When He had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met Him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Let's pray. Father, we pause now as we look to your word and we give you thanks for our time together this morning, our time in worship. Lord, we pray that all of it, Lord, would be pleasing to you, that the name of Jesus Christ would be exalted not only in song, but, but in our lives, Lord, in our hearts here as we study your word, that each of us would be willing today to lay down our lives before you and allow you, through the Spirit, by your word, to, to transform our hearts and minds, that we leave this place, Lord, more in love with you this morning. It is our prayer, and so we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so here as we encounter the disciples once again, they're in a, they, they've been in a boat, they've crossed the Sea of Galilee, they've, they've just endured a treacherous trip across the Sea of Galilee. As seasoned fishermen, the storm that arose there on the sea overwhelmed them. It made them afraid. And now here as they get to land, they immediately encounter two demon-possessed men who seem to be very aggressive. They've come out of tombs. Okay, they're living in tombs and they're, they're coming at Jesus and these disciples and they're apparently blocking the way for any travel. This shows us here that ministry does have its exciting moments, right? When you face things that you maybe didn't expect. And so here are two men whom demons have overtaken for some time, but notice something here. First off, that these demons have a right understanding of who Jesus is. James writes in James 2.19 of the importance of faith. He says, even the demons believe and tremble. In effect, he's saying, I don't care if you just say, well, I believe that God exists. That does nothing for you. What James wants to convey is that faith is about more than a belief in existence of God. It's about trust. It's about dependence. It's about a changed life that, that manifests good works because of your trust in Jesus. So here the demons recognize who Jesus is. And secondly, notice that the demons are aware of something else too. As they state here, have you come to torment us before the time? The demons recognize that there is a time ordained for torment. Now we don't know fully, but it seems here that these demons know that their influence on this earth has an expiration upon it. And that ought to encourage you today, Christian, so these demons here, they're surprised to see Jesus now because they understand that there will come a time and a point when they have no more influence on this earth, when evil has been entirely defeated, okay? Now, here it says in verse 30, Now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out... Permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. 
So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Now, as some of you read this this morning, you think, all that bacon into the sea, right? What a shame. It's been said of bacon, it's a sinful pleasure, right? I think it's kind of funny. Here's the thing. Here's what we really need to notice about this. These demons didn't have the authority to even enter the pigs on their own. They had to ask permission of Jesus. Now you can look at that two ways. You can look at that as an encouragement, once again, of the authority of the one you serve. That there's protection. That you know that the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, greater is He that is within you than he that is in the world. Or you can look at this and receive it almost as an indictment of our own audacity to think that we can live our lives without regard for Jesus and His plan for our lives. That even demons couldn't go into swine and run and and drown themselves in the sea without permission. Jesus has authority. We read in verse 33, Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. It would be my hope that these keeper of pigs would have run to Jesus and uh, surrendered their lives to him, but I don't know that I entirely blame them after witnessing everything that's gone down here as these two, no doubt, violent men come running out of the tombs, confront Jesus and the disciples. Probably demons violently leave them, move into the pigs, and they run into the ocean. These men are thinking, I'm getting out of here. And they go into the town and they tell everybody what's happened. And it says in 34, and behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. You see, for these people, their response was the latter that I stated earlier. You see, some people have a chance to see or witness the power of Jesus and the fear of God that comes in that moment as they witness just his power leads some to surrender their lives, to bring themselves under the authority of God and of Scripture. And others, sadly, it leads to rebellion, a distancing of themselves from the power of God, perhaps because of the implication of what it means if they have to, or what it is that they might have to give up to give their lives to Christ. And so there wasn't an overwhelming reception to Jesus in this area. Rather, it was quite the opposite. They asked him to leave, and so he did. In chapter 9, verse 1, we read, So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. And then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Jesus, rejected by the people of the Gergesenes, returns to Capernaum. When it says his own city, it wasn't Nazareth or Bethlehem. It was Capernaum where he had been ministering and for all intents and purposes, had been uh, quite successful. And he's teaching there in a house, and there's brought to him a paralyzed man. Now this seems to be the same account where the roof, in, in, uh, in the other Gospels, where the roof is removed, and the paralyzed man is, is lowered down. But Matthew doesn't include this detail. Now we need to look closely at this account, <clears throat> as this one includes uh, a distinct difference from the other miracles that have been performed prior to this point. While elsewhere, Jesus immediately heals and often comments on the faith of the individual, Jesus here reveals something else. For this paralyzed man, before Jesus heals him, he states, your sins are forgiven you. 
And this is huge in the ministry of Jesus. Notice for a moment here that this man had not sought forgiveness for his sins. He didn't come to Jesus asking for forgiveness. And really, that's the problem. Not just for this man, but for our culture today. What is often the case, even still today, is that when faced with the physical, we fail to see the spiritual. Now, am I suggesting that in the case of this man and in every other ailment that it's because of sin? If you're sick or if there's something going on in your life physically that it's because of sin? No, I'm not saying that. Sometimes that may be the case, but not always. But what I am saying is that in every case, always, our ultimate need is always spiritual. More than the physical, our need is spiritual. And Jesus ultimately came for that. He came for that. Friends, all that is going on in our world today, all that may be breaking your heart, when you turn on the TV, when you go through our city, when you, when you, you, you look at the news, all these different things that are going on, things that may be bringing disruption into your life, it is because of sin. It's because of sin. What is going on in our world today is a sin issue. And only Jesus can fix it. Nothing and no one else can. You guys have heard me talk a lot about politics lately within that safe sort of way that we talk about it in church. And really advocating for the fact that, listen, we can put our hope in no one, no man, no thing other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is it. And we're going to continue to get blitzed here over the next month about everything that needs to happen because it's the most important year in all of history. And we say that all the time. Don't you hear that all the time? And listen, I'm not going to go down that path right now. We're not going to deal with all that right now. What I'm going to tell you is, it's about Jesus. We have a sin problem with a gospel solution. Jesus has come. He has reconciled all things. And it's an opportunity for the church to live that out. You see, the fact is, our world today is full of the spiritually lame just like this man. And many have no knowledge of or, or they've ignored their need for forgiveness. But this is why Jesus came, not to heal physically, but to heal spiritually. And we see here in verse 3, at once some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. Now here's the thing, the scribes were not wrong in thinking that only God has the power to forgive sin. What they got wrong was who they believed Jesus to be. That he was just a man and not God himself in the flesh. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says in verse 4, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. This is that moment when you could sort of insert a mic drop for Jesus, right? This is that moment when all the disciples go, Oh, look what Jesus did! Right? This is the ultimate roast in their minds, right? And that's not what Jesus was about to that's not what he was about. That's not what he was trying to do. But as this all happens, you can only imagine. As Jesus has just said to the scribes, effectively, anybody can say, Your sins are forgiven. It means nothing unless you can back it up. You're right. 
Only God can forgive sins. Let me show you. Your sins are forgiven. You're healed. Get up. Take up your bed. Walk. You see, that was the point in the healing. When Jesus came and performed all these miracles, yes, did he have compassion and mercy on people? Is he still a God who heals today? Absolutely. But it was so that people would glorify God, that they would see Jesus is the one. He's the one he claims to be. And so we see in verse 8, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. And as Jesus passed on from there, now he's moving on from this house in verse 9, and now they're making their way through the city. And so they're still in Capernaum, and there was a man named Matthew who was working and living in Capernaum. Matthew is the one who has penned this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so now Matthew recounts his own conversion moment. As he sees a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Perhaps even more so than Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven, rise up and walk. A greater miracle for many of these people would be that Jesus would call a tax collector to join him in ministry. Now just as Jesus had forgiven sin here, pointing to the real reason for his coming, our ultimate need, our sinfulness, it's followed up by calling by the calling of one into ministry who was absolutely rejected by Jewish culture, considered a traitor, scorned, hated, and quite frankly, in some respects, rightfully so. A Jewish tax collector really was a traitor to their Jewish brethren, aligning themselves with Rome, oppressing their own people, and taking home a nice paycheck. There was no respect in such work. So you can imagine what people thought about what Jesus was doing. You can imagine what the disciples, the other disciples especially, what they thought as Jesus called Matthew. And notice here that Matthew, seemingly without hesitation, responds to the call. And he leaves everything behind. Now this would have been a great sacrifice to Matthew financially and professionally. It would have put him at odds with the Romans. Yet he gives it all up. And what does he do? Not unlike Peter's mother-in-law, he immediately throws a party and begins to serve Jesus. The call comes, he follows, he serves. There's a wonderful pattern in that. Now there's also something that's important to consider here for just a moment with Matthew and that he does immediately follow, just like the other disciples who were called by Jesus. Yet just not long before this, if you recall, there were some who came to Jesus and said, we want to follow you, but Jesus basically sent them away because he knew their hearts. He knew their hearts, but for Matthew, he calls him. And this should be a reminder to us as well as we strive to be faithful in witnessing to those we love and evangelizing to the lost, that listen, we are to be faithful in doing that, but never forget that it's the Spirit that draws one under repentance. It's not you who does the work, it's the Lord who does the work. And so here as we see Matthew respond immediately, well, that's because Jesus called him. No differently than when Jesus called you and the Holy Spirit broke through into your life and it made sense. And maybe you're trying to witness to somebody who's, who, who's been wayward for some time. Stick at it. Stick with it. Keep sharing the truth. And trust the Lord to do the work. Now it happened here in verse 10, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? As it's been established, tax collectors were simply the worst. And then Scripture says here that there were all kinds of other sinners sitting at the table. Now I wonder this morning, if you kind of took a moment 
who might you picture sitting there with Jesus in this moment? When you think of Jesus sitting there with all kinds of sinners to the awe and judgment of those looking on, no doubt many picture the drunk or the prostitute or the criminal or the politician. But I wonder, do you see yourself sitting at that table? You see, I've found that who we in our imaginations see sitting at the table with Jesus is often a window into our own hearts. And sometimes as we look through that window, we find that we're a bit more like the Pharisees watching from the outside. As a pastor, I often wonder what does the world think of the people sitting at our table as a church when we gather together? I'm anxious to get the big tent put up out there. I wish it would be here next week. I think it's supposed to be about three more weeks. You can pray it'd come sooner. So we can have more outdoor services. And I think to myself, well, I wonder what the community will think as they're driving by. An old-fashioned revival happening as we have our barbecue and baptism, which, by the way, those are separate events, same day. What will they think when they look on at us? Would those out in the world, would the unsaved, would, would people driving by think that there's anything different about our gathering from what they normally see? More importantly, would anyone driving by, walking by, think, I think there's a seat at that table for me too. Would the sinners and the outcasts and the marginalized in our community, if we were to define them as such, want to sit down with us? Because the fact is, we are the very people who are sitting at the table with Jesus to the scorn of the Pharisees. But sometimes we just do a good job of looking like something else. But the thing is, is we can't ever forget who we were without Christ. That's the perspective we so desperately need still today. The words of the Apostle Paul are always a great reminder for me as he writes in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. My pastor, who I served under as a youth pastor and an associate pastor for many years, reminds me, as much as he did then, still today, that I am so disqualified that I'm qualified to remind me always that it's nothing about me, but it's all about Jesus. We have got to be careful that we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. All that is good in us, Christian, is because of Jesus. In a social media world where people work so hard to to prove and to show how great they are, and, and, and we do good deeds, right? And, 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 and many times we, you know, we can go and we can serve someone at Hannah House or Providence Home and we can, we can be very simply just to, to, to check the box and say, well, I served the least of these today. That's with the wrong heart and the wrong perspective and certainly a wrong assessment of who we are relative to them. May we be a people instead who, like Paul in 1 Timothy in chapter 2, 15, writes, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That we would be a people who rather than trying to to demonstrate our self-righteousness would point to His righteousness and to say, I'm the worst. (laughs) 
No, I, no I'm the worst. No, no, I'm the worst. Right? We don't need to have some sort of uh, uh, competition at self-deprecation, but for us to have a right understanding of what Jesus has done in our lives. Make no mistake about it, friends. Because Jesus was crucified, I'm justified. Because He died, I'm alive. Because He rose, I have the promise of resurrection. And so because of Jesus, I am a new man. The old is gone, the new has come. But for the sake of perspective and for the sake of the love of the lost, may I never forget who I was. Amen? You see, when Jesus heard this, He said to them in verse 12, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. What is mercy? Not getting what you do deserve. I deserve eternity in hell. But in His mercy, He saw fit to die for me, to redeem me. And in His infinite grace, He also said, you get eternity with me. He says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so I am not suggesting that this is us today. But I think that many in the church today have forgotten who they were and their need for Jesus. And in many cases, this isn't even being taught in some churches today. And so many don't even rightly understand at all their need for a Savior. But because of this, there still today are too many Pharisees looking on at the table and not realizing there's a seat there for them too. Now as we move forward here, as I mentioned, as we begin to run short on time, we're going to move pretty quickly here through these miracles. But first, there's a question that's asked of Jesus. In, first, in verse 14, it says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? This was a reasonable question. This wasn't an attack. This wasn't an I gotcha moment. This was John's, John the Baptist's followers just saying, Hey, we're, we're curious about this. And so Jesus answers the question. He says in verse 15, And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Prior to Jesus, fasting was largely for mourning and for looking forward to Christ's coming. Jesus here really is further declaring who he is using the metaphor of a wedding. And he is the bridegroom, like we see in Hosea, in the prophet Hosea, in order to say basically, there's a celebration right now. I'm here. There's a wedding feast going on. You're not going to fast during this time. Who of you goes to a party where you know there's going to be awesome food and decide to start a fast that evening, right? Like, no, that comes tomorrow morning. That's what Jesus is saying. They're not going to fast while I'm here right now. Further, Jesus uses other analogies like the patch that he mentions or the wineskin to say God's doing a new work. He's doing something new. He's saying these are exciting times. And while we are permitted to fast today as believers because Jesus has ascended into heaven, it could be said to us as well that God is doing exciting things. And so let's be careful not to just look back and mourn and hold on to the things that we're used to, but to know that as God moves, He's doing new things. The message of the gospel remains the same, never changing, but aspects in our culture may cause us to go, God, God's doing something new. He's moving in a new way, and we're going to be obedient and look to that and ultimately look to Him and to His return. 
And so while he spoke these things to them, in verse 18, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And so Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, 